0: What's up, what's up, bitches? Welcome back to another episode of Positively Uncensored, your favorite reality TV and interview podcast. It's your host, Leah. And today we have a lot to cover. So get your coffee, get coffeeing, and get ready to get into lots and lots of television. The TV has been something that I almost have to limit at this point with how much content has been coming out because it's impossible to keep up with. But this week alone, we have Saltburn to talk about. We have Natalia Grace is Case, which is on HBO called, what is it? Natalia Speaks, I think. So Natalia Speaks came out on HBO Max season two. I had not heard of it, so I binge-watched season one, caught up with season two. That's really hot on the internet right now. We need to talk about that. There was also the Golden Bachelor wedding. I'm holding off on Southern Charm and Southern Hospitality to do a full other episode about it, but we have tons and tons of content to get into. As far as news, since my last episode... A lot has happened in the Married at First Sight world. If you're watching Married at First Sight, go back in your mind to season 14 and place Katina and Olajuwon in your head. If you don't follow them on socials, basically they have been together but up and down on and off the last few years Katina recently posted a story to her grid, recapping and wrapping the new year. I noticed Lajuan was in a lot of the photos and I was optimistically like, okay, there's probably been lots of changes in this relationship. When two people decide to work something out, I'm always going to say, go for it. I don't know the history. It's complicated once you're married. I'm never going to wish someone the worst when they try to work something out, so optimistically I'm like okay and then just yesterday Katina posts on her story photos of Olajuwon's mistress and the girl that he's allegedly been hooking up with or has been sort of dating since even before he went on the show if you did not get a chance to see those stories since they only stay live for 24 hours head over to my tiktok at Positively Uncensored, I have a playlist called MAFS News, and that's where you'll see um, Katina's stories. She's also on Instagram, underscore slim goody. It's not just Katina, just in case you can't find her for some reason, and in case she's posting more tea. But she posted photos of the mistress and basically was like, this is the woman who Olajuwon has been playing stepfather to her child for the last few years, um, and pointed out the fact that he came for her on the show so hard about dating apps on her phone that she wasn't even active on. Meanwhile, he's doing something so much more egregious. Also, he was just terrible to her on the show. He ripped down her confidence. He started out being so charming and over complimentative and, you know, just wanting to add to her self-confidence and as soon as she was a little bit vulnerable because at first... He kind of gave her the ick. She was like a little cringed out from him. It was a little bit too much. She was a little bit hesitant because he kind of seemed like an F boy. So she was like, eh. And then as soon as she drops her guard a little bit and all of his basically like plan has worked like all of his all of his effort has worked all of his compliments have worked a little bit all of his lying and deceiving then he just switches up on her and he takes her to this is what you have to do to be a good wife for me Um, all of these high expectations and just degrading her confidence at every step so if finding pictures of the mistress is how things split and He hadn't changed. I'm glad this happened because she does not deserve that. And Katina was was and is so smart, bright, intelligent. I know that even to be in a room with him for an hour, he would dim her light. I can't imagine a few years. The other story that she posted was another picture of the mistress with her name tagged and basically saying, wish the couple well, um have fun being the last pick for the rest of his life iconic honestly katina roasted him she deserves to air him out i hope that he doesn't have very many options after this i don't know that's just me being petty a lot of people were in my comments testifying to the fact that they have seen him whether it's on facebook dating apps or hinge so yes i believe that he has been out there For Bachelor Nation news, Brian and Rachel Lindsay have announced their divorce. And by they, I mean Brian, because it seems like he not only filed for divorce, but was the first person to put out a statement. You would think if things were going amicably, that because he basically filed for divorce and essentially maybe like served papers, you would think that Rachel would be at least given the ability to tell the public herself And that not be sprung on her as well. That's not what happened. I can't remember if I said in my last episode about the divorce. So that's one part is the separation has been announced. The other piece of that is Brian had his comments open for a while on Instagram. And Raven Gates' husband, Adam, essentially decided to comment and weigh in with his thoughts that he first clarified was not going to be biased, not taking sides. He just wanted to point out a couple of facts and then proceeded to defend Brain throughout his entire spiel. And I said Brain because that's how he spelled his name. He claims that he knows Brian very well. He has all these facts about Brian and, you know, how hard things have been for Brian and you know, why people shouldn't be coming for him, asking for spousal support from Rachel. Um, And after he said that, somebody responded and was like, maybe don't address Rachel and Brian's relationship and especially not to stick up for Brian when your wife had a falling out with Rachel. And Brian, and I'm sorry, Adam's response to that was Rachel had a falling out with lots of people. Raven's not the only one. It doesn't matter anymore. It does matter. So let's go back in time for a second, because on my socials, a lot of people haven't heard of the beef between Rachel and Raven. So if you haven't, during their season of The Bachelor that they were on together, Raven had kept a journal, allegedly of her first impressions of all of the ladies. At one point, I guess she either decided to read them or potentially others were reading theirs, and so she read hers. Rachel says in her memoir that she wrote that Raven had read hers out loud about Rachel and her description for Rachel was, Rachel has black skin, she is very nice. And that took Rachel aback as it should, and it should have been talked about during their season. It's derogatory, it's a very odd first impression to make of somebody. It's indicative of your experience or exposure around Black people. Um, It's indicative of your potential implicit bias about Black people. It was a problem. So him referencing that, and I just want to clarify, I am not saying that Raven has not educated herself. I certainly believe that once you have the, um, the option. Once you are aware of how your ignorance, you have the opportunity to educate yourself or remain ignorant and defend your actions. She she may have educated herself. I hope that she did. Um, however, her husband defending her actions to this day just rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So, I'm not saying cancel Raven. I'm not saying that she's still a bad person. She may have educated herself, but her husband's opinion on the matter, he should have just kept that to himself. He's wrong. It did matter what she has done. I don't even know if there's ever been some sort of public apology or public conversation, if Rachel even wants to have one. But the fact of the matter is that Rachel's feelings were hurt by what Raven had written and Raven was wrong for that period end of story and using all this talk of bachelor as a good segue to get into the golden bachelor wedding I'll start with the fact that Adam was there since I was just talking about him so Adam and Raven were both at the golden bachelor event and just to continue this little bit of a train I'm going on with how I just think he's kind of stupid At the wedding, I looked at his stories. He posted, first of all, he called it the golden weeding. So I think that him misspelling things is very common, i.e. the pinky and the brain reference. (laughs) Um, I also think it's comical that he posted a story with him and Gary. where It kind of seems like he's essentially interviewing Gary. He's like, so I'm here with Gary at the golden bachelor wedding. He's like, Gary, right? And Gary's like, yeah, Gary. He's like, yes, Gary. Like, you don't even know his name and you were invited to the wedding. There were so many people I didn't see from bachelor alum that I was surprised weren't there. Even the fact some people didn't get a plus one. Like, maybe she was busy, Sarah Highland, but like, where was Well's wife, for example? You know what I mean? Not saying you have to accompany your husband to everything, but There were a lot of people, Nick Vile and his fiance or wife weren't there. Um, There were a lot of people I didn't see that surprised me. I obviously want what's best for Rachel Lindsay and her mental health. So if that's staying inside and just hunkering down, understandable. But I kind of wish that she came just without Brian by herself, um, just to stunt sort of and just make sure she's okay as well. Getting into The Golden Bachelor, we need to talk about the fact that Jesse Palmer's first child was going to be potentially born during the ceremony. I want to know how much we ballpark. What are we thinking that they paid Jesse? Because I think there's been at least a Reddit thread once or twice. I love Jesse, but do I think Jesse is a big bachelor guy in his personal life? Not really. I think there's been videos of fans trying to engage with him when he's trying to eat. And he's kind of just like, dude, no. I don't want to talk about this right now. I don't want to take a picture. In fair, because nobody's private life should always be for public gain. So I get that. However, I just don't think Jesse like eat, sleeps and breathes The Bachelor is, is certainly not over his wife and the birth of their child. So I'm wondering what some they offered him to host on such an important night. That's number one. Number two, I'm wondering if I'm the only person who feels like they sort of hinted at the fact that we were going to see the reception. And then we didn't. It, it felt like the night is young, like we're going to watch everybody's dance moves later. And I don't, really know why they said that to not show it maybe they were implying that head over to the golden bachelor's instagram maybe they were implying they know bachelor nation is like hook line sinker for this and we're going to be watching the socials of castmates but i was confused um if jesse got that call in his pocket and had to run home 100% understand that. I was just confused at the abrupt ending because I could have done without the cocktail ceremony just to be able to watch the reception. That's just my personal opinion. Let's move on to the hosts. So Charity Lawson and Kathy from Gary's Season were the hosts for this evening. And Charity did impeccable. I knew that she would. I knew that she would look elegant. I knew that she would be... Funny. She's kind of awkward, so am I sometimes, where you're just not really sure where to go next. Like when an interaction is done. That awkward space between your next interaction or how you break away is something I struggle with. So seeing her like, okay, next to couples who she's talking with on the red carpet or golden carpet, um, side-eyeing Kathy for her commentary, I just lived for it. And I think that she did a good job connecting with people. She had to interview her ex, for Christ's sake, you know, and she did a great job. Kathy, on the other hand, I, I just didn't love it. I, I, I have to be honest, maybe they didn't pick other women from Gary's seasons because the women who the fans grew to know the most were the most hurt from the season. But I think Natasha would have done a much better job. Eden could have done a better job. Joan could have done a better job. I mean, there were so many. I mean, Susan was officiating, so she couldn't do it. But in my mind, there were so many better potential hosts than Kathy, who literally told Teresa to zip it and sort of hated on her discreetly and brazenly all season. So I thought that was odd. I got really annoyed with her self-deprecating bit or shtick. Um, you know, first time you say that you didn't get picked, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. That's funny. Continuing on that path throughout the majority of the night and making toasts about yourself. Um I don't know, just making all these references to how you're not married yet and how you're single looking for a man. It's not the Kathy show, okay? And Charity didn't make it about herself. We got one announcement during this special, which is the date of Charity and Dotton's wedding, fall 2025, woo, woo. And it better be on television. It better be on fucking TV. I don't care if it's not in the US. Fly the cameras there, give them a big budget. I wanna see it. But even with that announcement, Charity didn't make the night about her. Um, She didn't dwell on that. I think that everything that we saw, it felt a little bit like, okay, people, can we keep this about the couple? It did feel like that at a certain point after all the check-ins with everybody. But I do think that it was all structured. Every bit was planned. Every bit was organized. I'm sure the producers had you know, a lineup for how the evening was supposed to go, kind of getting a full circle moment, us checking in with people. But, oh, side note, sorry, ADHD. Olivia Lewis, what was Olivia Lewis doing that night? Did she have a long shift in the ER? Like, could could we not offer her more than that shift? She could have hosted with charity. That would have been iconic. It didn't need to be someone from their season. But anyways, I did enjoy seeing which Bachelor alum was there um as mentioned Olivia Lewis, Kylie, Kylie Russell, um Eliza, you know, had a split from Aaron. There were there were more people from like Bachelor in Paradise, like the younger seasons of The Bachelor that I'm just surprised weren't there. Um back to Charity's hosting skills. When she interviewed the couples who I'm not familiar with because I was not watching The Bachelor Bachelorette back then. Um, like the OGs it just killed me as I was saying when she was done with the interview and wanted to move on because just how relatable is that like uh can you guys leave and I'm the type of person where if you've been watching all these years I don't knock you for being excited to see them but like I don't care you know like even when they bring out Sean Lowe and his wife whose name I forget my apologies I know it starts with a K I just don't care You know, like we get it. Like these are your successful couples. But the more you push them down our throats, like the less I care. And that's just how I feel personally. Staying on theme with couples that were there. Katie and Zach were there. I don't know if we have heard of their tentative wedding date Um, which is kind of interesting just because his season was before charities. So TBD on that. I will say Katie looked good with the brown hair. I am a personal fan of her blonde more. I just thought she was absolutely stunning, but she looked great with the dark hair. Her dress was beautiful. Um, Zach looked all right. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Getting into the actual ceremony now, which seemed like the speeches lasted the most amount of time to the point where after Susan gave her little monologue or like pre- like ceremony speech to start everything, it felt like once they got to the part where they actually said, I do, I don't know. It felt rushed to me. I don't know if they had a timer, a thing in her ear, but the ceremony itself, it was beautiful. I liked the fact that they had what seemed like a live orchestra, like a strings orchestra there, that made it beautiful. I wasn't sure what song they were going to walk down the aisle to, but just having that orchestra playing without any singing was actually really nice. So I enjoyed that. Um, Teresa looked beautiful. I liked her dress. I absolutely loved her veil. I loved the detail on her veil. She had these beautiful pearls in there. It seemed like pearls were all around the wedding. So I know that at least when my mother was married, you know, I think she wore pearls for her wedding. There's some sort of symbolance with wearing pearls that I know the older generation does, but she looked gorgeous um, her vows made me cry, you know, (laughs) looking at Gary's face made me cry more. Um, she definitely had her vows down better than Gary. Gary had to like, look at his. I'm not sure if Teresa just kind of went off the cuff or if she had hers practiced and memorized, but it just flew. It just flew out of her mouth so elegantly. I enjoyed listening to it. The daughters, first of all, I'm going to be honest, and this is not a hate, just a critique. I didn't love the bridesmaids' dresses. I just didn't, okay? I think for this big budget, they could have done a little bit better. That's just my personal opinion. The speeches as well, it was just too much. Do that at the reception. Do that, you know, after everyone has eaten some food and people are doing speeches and want to show love to the bride and groom, do it then. Like, don't do it before they say their I do's. And then to add on to that, the commercial breaks, I can't imagine navigating that at your actual wedding. Like, Teresa had to stand at the back of the aisle. I thought she was up at the front of the altar at first. I'm going to be honest. I was like, fucking awkward. But no, she was at the back of the aisle And just standing there, Jesse's like, wasn't that great? Let's take a commercial break. Like, okay, Jesse, really? Really? The timing? Um, And because it's a live taping, it sucks that they can't just continue the flow of the wedding. But I'm curious as to how long this went on. I said in one of my TikToks, I can't tell if it went on till 10 p.m. or till 3 a.m. Like looking at different cast members from the show's stories, it's unclear if people waited to post them until this morning or if they were truly up that late. But there was a lot that we definitely didn't see. Somebody talked about the missed opportunity on Twitter for them to throw the bouquet to who the next Golden Bachelorette will be. I agree that that could have been a missed opportunity, but as I said before, this wedding was already so much about everybody else that it's like, let's not, let's not add the announcement of the bachelorette during it as well. The shine should be kept on them, which brings me to the next thing that happened. Christina Mandrell and Brayden get engaged in the middle of the bachelor, the wedding don't, don't do this. I understand it's a show. I understand real life rules don't apply. I understand that producers told them this, but it's just such an ick. It's such an ick. I I really do congratulate them. I, I love Christina, love Brayden. I want, I want them to come on my podcast. In fact, like I'm fans, but it's just a no getting engaged at somebody else's wedding. Now, like I said, I think that Bachelor producers were planning on people being tuned into every single second, keep stuff happening, keep it, you know, keep it lively. So I'm sure that they were reached out to and probably propositioned to do this. They did post a picture like posing with Neil Lane, which makes me think that Braden's ring may have been sponsored by The Bachelor in order to be proposed to, you know during this segment. but I'm not sure. That's just kind of what I'm thinking. Like I said, I'm happy for them. When they announced that they were in a couple, I had been peeping them on Instagram for about three weeks. I saw that he was following like her intimate friends that not anybody else was following. And I was just watching their interactions and likes before they announced that they were together. And I was like, ooh, that could be exciting because they have very similar personalities. But, you know, now that they're out in the open, they've been living together, I'm happy for them. I'm wondering how many weddings we're going to get to see. Like, okay, so Charity and Dotton's wedding, we better get to see. Are we going to see Brayden and Christina's because they did that in the middle of their segment? Not sure. I'm disappointed we didn't get to see what their first dance song is. But I was trying to make bets or guesses as to what they would walk down the aisle to. I thought it would be something like try a little tenderness or everlasting love but they come down the aisle to boo thing like the one that's in all the commercials you're my little boo thing do 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 -do -do thing girl do say like what are we in target what's happening i'm not sure who selected that song but i'm not a fan it's overplayed on every commercial i watch so i thought that was really interesting and that It was odd they didn't go with music that was, like, from their generation. Before I move away from The Golden Bachelor, we also have to talk about Faith and Leslie. It's interesting they were both there. I'm really curious. It feels like one of them's going to be The Golden Bachelorette. Kathy... Inappropriately asked Faith, so your dead horse is buried in your backyard. You already told Gary that you're not going to move uh, because of that. But would you? Did he you change your mind? Would you do that for the right man? That line of questioning felt like it was supposed to be asked differently, um, potentially to set up the fact that Faith is going to be picked as Bachelorette. However, Leslie just has such an appeal because she was done so dirty. Um, I don't know if it was, you know, tactical to have both women come, but I, I almost wonder if it was optional. I don't know if appearance-wise, you know, they're just on their own discretion. Like, it would look bad if I don't go. I don't know if producers forced them to go by saying, you know, this is part of your contract to film for every episode of the season. This is episode 14 of the season. Because if you'll notice, on even on TV Guide yesterday, it was called The Golden Bachelor, not Golden Bachelor Wedding. So I think that might be a loophole that got both of those women there. But even though Leslie looked beautiful... She did look uncomfortable when they panned to her face. You know, she has a look plastered on her face where she's, you know, trying to look happy. But I would imagine yesterday and last night was painful for her, given how they ended. We're going to move on from The Bachelor and we're going to transition into this show called Natalia Speaks. If you are into true crime this will captivate you. Trigger warning, it it does talk about child abuse. There's child neglect. There's sexual abuse in this show. Um, There's also ableism. Like an undertone throughout the whole show is just society and people who could help's response to this little girl. So I want to say that before we get into it, just because it could be triggering. But let me tell you, Natalia Grace, if you haven't heard about her, um. In short, before we dive into the series, she was a little girl who was from the Ukraine. In 2003, I believe she came over to the U.S. or something, or maybe she was born in 2003. The dates get hairy throughout this series because there are lots of them and they're changed a lot of times. But she comes over here and around four years old, she's adopted by her first family in the U.S. She stays with them for a short time and then she is put back up for adoption. On her second round, she is adopted by a family by the name of the Barnetts. The Barnetts adopt her. They have three children already. Jacob, the oldest, is autistic, and he's a genius. The mother tried to write a book about her son, or successfully did, actually. She wrote a book about her son, alleging that she basically was able to put a spark in him or work with him enough that he became a genius um, and basically took credit for his intelligence. That That's what she did. So her book became successful. She made like $600,000 off of it. Um, and this is kind of setting the tone for what Christine, the mother, does with their adopted daughter, Natalia or at least what she wanted to do. Her intention, as her husband says later in this series, was to appear a hero, to show that she was able to basically help children with autism become geniuses and that she could do that for everyone. She compares herself to a saint. She wrote a letter about how she could be a saint. These are all things that we don't know until later in the series, but they're pertinent to just knowing what type of family Natalia is going in. And I actually think that knowing these things prior to watching would have been more beneficial than how this show is pitched, which is basically the first season, or at least first three episodes, is telling the Barnett's point of view and a bunch of ignorant citizens, community members, etc., who are alleging that Natalia is a sociopath. They, The whole storyline that we get pitched in the beginning is we try to figure out if this little girl is a little girl. She's supposed to be six years old by the time they've adopted her, the second family that she's been through in the United States. She's supposed to be six. First three episodes allege that she is 22, potentially even 30 It has stories of people saying that she was dangerous around their children, um, showing her play date and how she looked like a predator, showing how tactical she is um, and how she was manipulating the family. That's what they try to pitch this as. And then the alternative is, or is it the family? And this this is such a bad way. to to describe the show, because what this show is really about is abuse. It's about child abuse. It's about ableism. It's about having the wrong people in control of a child's life. It's about the system failing her. It's about a community failing her. It's about all of that. There's no point in this where it's really about Natalia or assuming that she is it, this adult who is scheming everybody because, and this is a big spoiler, we find out towards the end of season one um, and definitely in season two that Natalia's age was six. So the series starts out with her mother You know, we hear the story of, oh, her first night bringing home from adoption, she had full pubic hair when she was set in the bathtub. And a couple weeks later, Christine found all of these wads of underwear outside of Natalia's window. She was hiding her period. And, you know, there was a video of her saying that. This is when my hackles go up. As the family is using videos of this little girl where she is admitting a problematic behavior, or admitting something that they didn't like that she did, that immediately got my red flags up because that's an issue. That alone is abusive. Making a mockery of your child, filming their um, mistakes and weaponizing them against them, and then it reaches another level because they were actively punishing Natalia. Natalia. And we see no interviews with Christine this entire series. I will say that's a very frustrating aspect. We don't get to hear her comments aside from social media posts that they have um, archived and shown us in this series and just recanted tales from her husband. Nor do we see any justice in terms of her being in jail. It's unclear to tell whether Christine has some sort of personality disorder potentially where she genuinely believes that Natalia is like a spy or she genuinely believes that she has someone in her home who was trying to take advantage of her family and was scamming her or lying to her I don't think so I think it's more likely that she was just a very evil person She is convinced that this little girl is not who she says she is. She is convinced that she would have an accent. But most of all, in my mind, she's just convinced that because she's not... Doing math problems the way that Jacob does. And because her program and the way that she treated Jacob, her oldest son, to get results that were publish-worthy, because that's not happening, she resented Natalia. She resented the fact that she opened her home for what she thought was going to be another... St. Christine situation. She thought she was going to look great. Look at all the progress I've made with this child. And instead, Natalia has normal comprehension for a six-year-old. She is doing things and saying things that are actually... beyond her age group Um, her teachers say that maybe she could have gone on to second grade she is well-spoken and eloquent Um, she was able to read from a magazine however she was not doing calculus or physics like Christine was trying to force her to do and then punishing her every time she couldn't and this family makes zero accommodations for her either Um, yes she gets her foot surgery But aside from that, they go out of their way to make her do things that are not easy for her and would definitely result in pain. Walking around the neighborhood with no shoes on, nose pressed against the wall for hours for allegedly trying to put like, what is it, pledge and Christine's coffee, which never happened, or punished and put in the garage, you know, for playing with a neighbor boy who they said she touched inappropriately. It's just, they treated her like she was in prison. Worse. But again, this series tries to paint a certain narrative the first half of season one. So, you have to look through what we're seeing and look beyond things. The father was suspicious to me immediately. The circumstance of the adoption was suspicious immediately. I do not trust him or any word out of his mouth. She looked like a child. I I believe children always. So there was that in the back of my mind. But they feed us details like, well, she's actually 20. And, you know, the Ukraine birth certificate could have been fabricated. And then at... Eight years old, they had her birth year changed to 22. So she aged like 16 years overnight. Just kidding, 13. I'm bad at math. Nonetheless, her childhood was ripped away from her. She went from being eight years old and tentatively second grade to Being 22 years old, able to drink, able to vote, able to drive, able to live in an apartment on her own, according to state laws. And after they changed her age and had convinced and swindled one doctor um, to say that she was definitely older than she seemed, they moved Natalia at eight, biologically, to her own apartment and on the second floor and into a part of town that they thought was shitty. And let's talk about that because Christine made a big mistake here. She thought that by putting Natalia in a low-income area or in an area where crime was common, that people there were going to be unintelligent and unfeeling. Big mistake Some of the most compassionate and intelligent people live in areas exactly like Lafayette. They are the kindest people there. They share their resources as a community, even when they don't have them. You are a true community looking out for one another. So she thought that she was sending her to this area that was quote unquote shitty and um, crime ridden and nobody would notice. No, no. Everybody is looking out for one another, and people were instantly alarmed. In fact, it was the only city where a police officer defied what everyone else was telling him, like, no, you can't look into it, legally she's 22, and said, this is a child. I have children. When I talk to her, this is a child. This isn't right. I'm looking into this further. There's no way that she's 22, and we have the neighbor who watched out for her and gave her a sandwich and ultimately said, this is fucked up and was actually, I think, subpoenaed by the court or interviewed for the court on Natalia's behalf um, to stand up for her. She was very adamant against the attorney representing Michael and the Barnett family who alleged that Natalia was, that every that something bad happens everywhere Natalia goes, um, that She was a con artist, um, potentially even salacious and odd sexual undertones where they're implying that she was overly flirtatious or that she knew what she was doing at six years old to have men saying things to her. But that mistake ends up being what gets this family to have some sort of justice served. Granted, it's not served fully for Natalia. I don't believe she's gotten any justice, but at least the case was brought to attention. He w- they were charged with child neglect for moving what he believed was a child out of their home. And if not a child, somebody who is disabled and under their care without accommodations and they are not caring for. This allowed further investigation into what's really going on, talks with doctors, the FBI is involved, a trip to Ukraine, to Natalia's original orphanage, and interviewing her mother. And this is where it's confirmed that doctors had been telling this family over and over, she is a child, one doctor who was her therapist, I believe, and fuck you, fuck this therapist. One doctor said that, that she had schizophrenia and, you know, attachment issues. Everybody, a lot of people have attachment issues. I have attachment issues. But, and that she was a sociopath at six years old who wanted to kill her family. And that recommendation, that letter, whatever, got used to support something with another doctor who agreed to change her age. Mind you also, this documentary doesn't—it does do a good job because there's sound, level-headed people pointing out things on Natalia's behalf the whole time. But adults do a terrible job of recognizing the level of control that this family has over this girl— even when the doctor is told by Natalia I'm over 19 I'm 22 and then believes her as if that's something that she wanted to say and wasn't forced to say it's just egregious the level of stops and preventatives put in place but there was tons of doctors who looked at her teeth x-rays who looked at her spine who Inter, who evaluated her psychologically they put her in an inpatient facility and they called them and said she's absolutely not an adult nor does she need to be here she doesn't have any mental health concerns nor is she a concern to your children's health and then what did they do after that before they put her into an apartment complex they put her into a halfway house Eight years old, they put her into a halfway house, and then they're surprised that she has any sort of behavioral problems, because I'm sure Natalia has a couple. I'm sure that she had heard sexual words that she shouldn't repeat before she should. I imagine that happens when you grow up in an orphanage in Ukraine where you are sexually assaulted as a child. I imagine that happens when you are dropped off at a halfway house and see people having sex and doing drugs right in front of your eyes with all sorts of language. I imagine that that would happen if you live in your apartment in a a part of town where you don't know stranger danger and you literally go door to door to talk to someone and end up talking to a sexual predator. All of that exposure... All of that trauma, all of that abandonment and refusal for people to step in who have positions of power would certainly cause problematic behavior in adults, especially for children. But that problematic behavior does not mean that Natalia is a sociopath, nor does it mean that she was a danger to people. She was punished time and time again with, you know, childhood friends cut off because of lies from her parents told to them. She was beaten constantly. Family members... Like her brothers were forced to beat her as well. She was thrown down the stairs. She was taken out of school because her mother told her husband that she was hurting people there and told Natalia that teachers called and said, you're a danger to kids. You're running them over with your wheelchair. When we hear interviews from her teachers saying Natalia was nothing but a pleasure. She was a remarkable child. She was a delight to have in class. So it's just a otherworldly level of manipulation. Another factor in this entire docu-series is how fucking annoying the dad is. Michael is the fucking worst. I can't take him seriously. He is an enigma. When he talks... He does impressions where he repeats things tons and tons of time. He tells details that aren't important. He victimizes himself too much and takes way too little accountability and responsibility. I fucking hate him. I do. I hate him. Do I acknowledge the fact that his wife was manipulative? Yes. Does he still hold power in this situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. He had recorded videos of Christine where she was physically violent to Natalia to act like as aware of her image as Christine was that if you hadn't said to her, if you don't stop beating her, I will take this. I will send it to the news outlets. I will post it on the Facebook. You have five minutes to fucking quit and we're getting a divorce and I'm taking all of these kids out of here or your reputation is ruined. He could have grabbed power for himself. He's also a man, physically more powerful. He could have just called the police. Half the time when there's a domestic dispute, even if the woman is abused, the one time that she strikes back to defend herself, she ends up getting arrested anyways. Like the <laughs> the fucking legal system's on your side, bro, in the negative way, but for once just let it work. He could have called the police. He did nothing. He was complacent. He is an abuser. He was involved. The text messages from him imply that he hated Natalia too. He hated her. He hated Her And used it as a bonding piece with his wife. Him and Christine mutually bonded over one thing they had in common, which was hate for Natalia. And the more that he amped that up, the more of a response he got from Christine, the more that he validated christine's treatment for her the more she tolerated being around him while she was having affairs with other people and getting her sexual needs met elsewhere you know she was holding intimacy over his head he's just spineless absolutely spineless one thing i do want to say is there are undertones of darkness throughout this whole series though i like the man family I'm grateful for the Mann family. I believe Christine was extremely involved in manipulating people and spreading lies about Natalia. But as far as the interview with the Manns, which is the new family Natalia's with when she's an adult, I believe she's 22 now. When they interview their young one of their children and she says, <clears throat> "I have a memory of Natalia where she beats me." as a baby, but she didn't know better. Okay. You know, valid. As said, lots of trauma, unsure how to handle things. In Ukraine, that is how they disciplined children who were crying. I see not knowing that. However, the part about the, the nurse's statement, I don't know how Christine could have been involved it really felt like to me the mans did not want to take Natalia back, that they did tell the nurses to not allow her to return home Um, because why would they not have been there if that was untrue? If she's a child, maybe 8, 10, 12 at this time, even 16, that's still a minor, whatever age she was at the time of this, why weren't they there? The fact that they even left and there was the opportunity for, in the mom's mind, Christine to call and intervene makes me think that that's partially true. And with every lie is a partial truth. The, the mom and the man family might not know that nurses are legally obligated to record everything. She may have called and just said, you know... I don't really know how to say this, but we don't really want to take Natalia back home. Like, she uh, beat her, and I, I don't even remember how serious the beating was, but I think it was serious enough that the daughter, the baby, needed hospitalized. So, I I, I, I just, I don't, it feels fishy to me. It feels fishy. And I don't know what the motivation would be. Like I said, I want to trust this family. I appreciate the dad, you know, defending Natalia, but... It's interesting that she, that that's out there, that we read it. I don't think Christine was able to know about that incident as it's happening and then call the hospital. I just don't see how that would be possible. I feel like that was a very weird fabrication. They also mentioned that Natalia, you know, can't file for a civil suit. And if she was related to the Barnets, I don't understand the legality behind that, but she can't file against them if she's related to them is what it sounded like so part of the adoption process and changing her name to man and all the time they spent with why she wants to be a man and how she's always felt like a man i don't know the distrusting part in me just feels like something's off and maybe nothing is and maybe ignore me but i don't trust the mom (laughs) kind of specifically in that family. I don't know. I, I don't know if she wanted whatever winnings Natalia might get from this court case and they realized they might have, you know, a cash cow on them. I don't know if I'm being ignorant, but the timing feels off. What I do hope is that I'm wrong. I hope that that's just the That's just television, trying to make things seem hairier than they are. I'll wait to go through Reddit threads and see what people are saying if more truth is out there than we know so far. But I talked with a couple of friends, and I know I'm not the only person who felt that way, so it just needed to be said, and TBD if they'll be bringing on a season three. Where I end out with the case is Natalia deserves justice, Christine should be in prison, Michael should be in prison. Ultimately, the incident with the mans is kind of irrelevant. It doesn't change her situation and her childhood and what she went through. And I don't think she's a monster. I think that the ableism that people had, as I said, is an undertone throughout this entire series. Because had she not had dwarfism would people have really questioned her age would there really have been grounds to speculate on what her age was and how she's presenting herself it seems like a lot of the rumors and fears spread from ignorance from people and that was another sad part that needs to be talked about when you talk about this series and fuck that grandma that they kept interviewing who first said that her husband got solicited by her, then she changed the story around. She said it was three other men from the apartment. Make up your fucking mind. Don't make harsh accusations with your chest at your fucking age. At your old age, really? You're gonna go out saying something hateful? Bye. And I know that that's rude, but just despicable despicable blaming natalia just gross a child we know it was a child and she's basically like well i didn't conduct the test so i don't know we're gonna get into Saltburn really briefly because i'm gonna do a full recap with a friend on the entire movie we both loved it but before i do i want to plug the fact that february book club is approaching i'm taking the month of january off if you haven't read Every Last Secret, which was the December pick, read it. Read Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. We will continue to talk about those books. I haven't even done an episode on either book because my life has been chaotic. So please bear with me. I'm going to extend that book over. But for February in advance, I already got and pre ordered Mike Sorrentino's book, Reality Check Making the Best of the Situation. And I'm excited. I'm so excited. This is going to be our book we read in February, keeping it kind of pop culture, reading a memoir. Um, I got this for Christmas, and actually I got two books instead of one. So I'm going to do a giveaway or like a raffle. I will keep you posted on the requirements to enter, but just so everybody knows, I'm going to give away one of these books. So if you end up not being able to buy the book or you just don't feel like it or you'll participate in book club, but if you have the book, this is a good opportunity. Or if you just want the book, it's a hard cover, super nice. We can read it together, but I'll keep you updated on the requirements. Let's talk about Saltburn. Before I spoil this movie, in case you haven't seen it and you kind of need a convincer, let me tell you what it's about. So, the description on Google says Distraught by his classmate, Oliver's unfortunate living situation, Felix, a rich student, invites him over to his estate. Soon, a series of horrifying events engulf Felix's family. My description of the movie would be Eat the rich, in three words. Eat the Rich. That's what this movie's about. So if you like this ki- those kinds of movies, watch this. The cast. We've got Barry Keoghan. Don't know how to say his last name. Jacob Elordi. Rosamund Pike. Allison Oliver, who played Venetia, the sister, who I had not seen in something, but she did a good job. And then Richard E. Grant, who played the father. Those are just some notable actors and that are the main parts of the film. But... Basically, yeah, Oliver, he is not rich. He becomes friends, sort of, with Felix, and he goes home to his house instead of his own home after a tragedy, and soon we see what his intentions for being there are. Now let's get into spoilers, so don't listen if you don't want to know. If you've already watched the movie, I'm going to talk about it. So, and I have a cough drop in my mouth. I'm kind of sick. So apologies if you hear it. So the question I had the most after watching this is, does Oliver love Felix or hate him? And I think it's both. I think that love and hate are both the strongest emotions that you can feel. So I think there is a very fine line between love and hate. I think that he loved Felix, but I think that he hated Felix's wealth I think that he hated what Felix represented which was everything that Oliver did not have naturally in his life so I think that was a point of contention in their relationship however it's interesting that Oliver had sought out and been kind of watching Felix as we come to find out Because it's almost like that forbidden fruit. It's almost like Beauty and the Beast. Like, he knew what his intentions were, which was he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a predator prowling um, and trying to gain access because he wanted what Felix had. However, he also loved Felix. And I think he hated that he loved Felix, which is why internally he was back and forth between it. But... I mean, drinking the bathwater what a scene. What a scene. Have I ever thought about eating out a bath drain? No. No, I haven't. Was that somehow still provocative and stay with me? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it, it was arousing, yet also gross at the exact same time. The period blood scene... Um, wow. It was very clear to me as soon as he complimented, um, the mom, what was going to happen. I was like, okay, it's sort of like American psycho, but taking it further. And I knew I was like, we're going seduction. He's going to seduce each member of the family. I wasn't sure if he would kill them during intimacy or kind of like what the motive was, was for that in terms of Venetia with the period blood. He ends up telling her the next day to, or before they, they have that incident, um, that she's going to eat and keep it down because trigger warning, she was struggling with an eating disorder. So in that situation, it felt like power over her. Um, as far as what was his name? What was the brother's name? Failey, Farley, as far as Farley, I don't know what that was. Maybe to show Farley that he is weaker than he perceives himself. But ultimately, I hated how Farley said something to him the next day and was pretty much like, you're going to jerk off to that and think of it for the rest of your life and it'll be nothing to me. I think the constant reminder that he was just entertainment for this family potentially made it easier for him to commit to his plan. I don't think that he would have changed his plan if they were kind to him, but I do think that it made it easier for him. Because when you when you watch back because I had to go back and rewatch this after because I truthfully didn't pay attention to at least the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie, we notice that the movie starts the this with the, how it ends, and that doesn't make sense at first, but he's clearly in the house that he goes to and it's clearly his now and he was always 10 steps ahead like a true genius because at the end the question I'm stuck with was did he know that the mother was going to be there at that cafe did he plant himself there it would seem like he did because he knew that once he saw her, she would want him to come back into her life because there's another forbidden fruit. That's what he was. The husband essentially paid him off to leave because fuck you. My wife is attached. I'm overwatching it. And there's kind of no reason that you should be taking care of her instead of me. So he goes off and leaves, you know. Without a scene, because he got paid off, essentially. So her seeing him again, it's like, okay, well, my husband wanted you away. I want you back. Did did her husband die? That was confusing to me as well. What happened to her husband? And did he do that as well? I might have to rewatch this movie before I do my recap with Brie. Shout out Brie Nunn, Brie the Black Sheep. Follow her podcast, my bestie, my bestie. But we're going to recap this together. I don't know how the husband died because every other death was like we was so animated was was such a scene was so dramatic. Farley, I think we come to find out it was the coke. Did he poison the cocaine? Um, I think for Jacob Alordi's character Felix, it seemed like he poisoned the wine. I mean, it's truly unclear as to how he killed all of them. I would assume that he had slit the wrists or done something to Venetia when she's in the bath and made it look like she had self-harmed from grief of Felix's loss. But even the fact that he was able to stay there and not just be immediately put out of the family, how? And what happened to the butler? These are the questions I have. What happened to the butler? Where did he go? I thought the butler would be the first person that Oliver would take out. And I also thought the butler would have forced him to leave. I thought, he knows your game. He sees you. He, he knows your mark immediately and what you're doing with this family. But it was interesting that he held the umbrella over him after their second funeral together, and he was still permitted to be there. Just to read a Reddit comment I found and not take credit for this thought because it was good. Someone's sentiment on Oliver premeditating everything was this makes it seem like everything was premeditated and motivated by economic resentment and not Felix at all. For people who thought that he hated Felix, essentially, Um, this author is saying that he didn't hate Felix. um, It was more Felix's economic status and what he represented, kind of like what I was saying earlier. Then, then this author continues, but people forget that this is still Oliver that's talking, and Oliver, first and foremost, is a liar. As debilitated as Elsbeth is, she's still an audience, one that Oliver is very aware of and one he's practically performing for, and Elsbeth always loved a gruesome story. And more because you think back to her friend and how her friend's sob story and being able to stay there permitted this sadness from elspeth and immediately she wanted all the details of oliver's tragic life it's like she has such a privileged and fluffed life that she takes the grit that people earn through their traumas and she wants to hear about them to talk about them but and the author continues and more importantly i think oliver is also lying to himself trying to rewrite himself as the victor of the story when he's ultimately lost what matters most to him felix It's like when he asks, but was I in love with him? I think it's clear from the performances, the way that Emerald uses the camera to embody Oliver's gaze, the way that Oliver continues to grieve even after Felix is gone, that yes, he was in love with him. But Oliver insists no, as he tells his story. Oliver is actively rewriting the truth the way he always has. So good. Because that's what he does throughout the whole movie. He rewrites his truths. He did it with his dad. That's how he got invited here anyways. I Even without meeting Elsbeth and Felix's family, he must have picked up on the fact, whether it was comments of he'll get tired of you soon, that Felix potentially has a habit of caring for the wounded bird, essentially. He um, wants to save people. Uh, Maybe he's a nurturer. I'm not sure. Maybe he's a narcissist. (laughs) I don't really know what Felix's bag is. But he knows that. And he crafts the story after sleeping with one of the girls that Felix was messing around with that his father cracked his head, died. Both of his parents were addicts. And that's how he gets the invite to the estate in the first place. So there is a level of tactfulness. There is a level of he saw Oliver. I'm sorry, he saw Felix. Felix. But I just want to say, too, I think Felix loved him. When you go back and watch, the care and protection that he granted Oliver and understanding and their moments and just their softness with each other, it just seems, mm, I don't know. I think he loved him, too. I'm going to end this episode with the scene where he pulls out the throat chest tube or whatever. He's like, whoa, and turns off the machine and gives his speech was crazy. Because we saw the the scene with the grave and him having sex with Felix's grave, I was not sure if he was climbing up there to, I don't know, be necromaniac, filiac, whatever the word is, that kind of stuff, or what was about to happen. But then when he rips it out and the sound effect they put in place, holy cow. What an unexpected movie. I I don't know what I expected, But it wasn't that at all. And we end with, where are Oliver's parents? Does he do all of this to make a better economic status for all of them? Or was this just for himself? My guess is it was for himself. But I don't know. Such a good movie. Such a good movie. Don't watch it with your parents. That's what I'll say. Or your children. Definitely not your children. Until next time. Think about getting your reality check by Mike Sorrentino's book. Look out for my post on the raffle. Um, Read Hood Feminism and Every Last Secret, which were December and January's book club picks. And make sure you're following me on TikTok, on Instagram, so you can keep up with all the little videos I do and recaps between the podcast. Love you. I love every single one of you listening. If you're new here, welcome. My recaps are frequent. They are often. I try to do them consistently right after everything's put out. So follow, subscribe, leave a review if you're new here. And if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, rate it five stars if you loved it, if you love me. (laughs) And then I'll see you guys for my next episode.